Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is um, co-hosting this event uh, with the Federalist Society's practice groups. I want to thank uh, Dean Reuter. Is Dean with us here today? Ah, there you are back there. Thank you, Dean, for uh, um, your support uh, in this uh, forum today. We're here to mark the publication of an important new book uh, from the University of Chicago Press, um, Professor Philip Hamburger's provocatively titled, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? Uh, he answers that question in the negative, and for good reason. Those who follow Cato's constitutional work have heard me say many times that we live today rather less under the Constitution than under something called constitutional law, which is too often connected to the Constitution only tangentially at best. Indeed, as, the evidence, as evidence for that, we need to look uh, as recently as last Monday uh, when the Obama administration's EPA unveiled a proposal for new environmental rules of a kind that Congress had already rejected. And of course, the president's rewrite of the so-called Affordable Care Act often by White House press release, uh, has been so frequent that to call what emerges law uh, is to strip that term of all meaning. Well, in his scholarly new work, uh, Professor Hamburger takes no position on the many policy issues before the country today. His focus instead is on the unconstitutional methods by which those policies have come about not only under this administration, but under administrations of both parties for decades. Since at least the progressive era, we have lived under the ever-expanding modern executive state, notwithstanding that our Constitution affords only two ways in which to, the government may bind subjects, namely through its legislative and judicial powers through Congress or the courts. The executive has the power to enforce, not to make that law, yet today the executive branch, through its administrative agencies, makes, adjudicates, and enforces most of the rules under which we live. It's often said that this process has been made necessary by the complexities that followed the Industrial Revolution, yet Professor Hamburger raises serious doubts about that contention. Executive edict is not unique to the 20th and 21st centuries. Its roots, rather, are in the royal prerogatives of the Middle Ages, which English and American constitutions of the 17th and 18th centuries were written to end, freeing us from such arbitrary rule. Yet it's back with us, and this new book discusses it in exquisite detail and depth. Professor Hamburger is the Maurice and Hilda Friedman Professor of Law at the Columbia University School of Law. He's a graduate of Princeton and the Yale Law School, after which he practiced law in uh, Philadelphia. He, uh, his publications include Separation of Church and State and Law and Judicial Duty. Uh, before joining the Columbia faculty, uh, he was the John P. Wilson Professor uh, of law at the University of Chicago Law School, where he was also the director of the Bigelow program and the legal history program. 
Early, uh, he has taught at George Washington uh, University Law School, Connecticut Law School, the Virginia Law School, and at Northwestern Law School. Please welcome Professor uh, Hamburger. So, my question is, is administrative law unlawful? Let's lower this a little bit. It's a nice toy, uh, but I don't think I need one at home. So is administrative law unlawful? There are many complaints about administrative law, that it is arbitrary, that it is a burden on the economy, and that it is an intrusion on freedom. The question addressed by my book, though, is different. Is administrative law unlawful, in particular unconstitutional? Although others have addressed this question in terms of constitutional doctrine, my focus is on constitutional history. Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, and this is exactly what has happened with administrative power. Administrative law is commonly defended as a new sort of power. It's said to be a product of the 19th and 20th centuries, so it's a modern power that developed to deal with the complexity of modern society. It thus allegedly could not have been anticipated by the Constitution, and so it was not barred by it. My thesis, in contrast, is that administrative power is actually very, very old, that it revives what used to be called prerogative or absolute power, and it thus is exactly what constitutional law developed in order to prohibit. But we of a nation have, forgot have forgotten this, and we therefore now suffer under a new bureaucratized version of absolute power. Before beginning, I should say a little bit about my historical method. I know historical method isn't really what you came to hear about, but forgive me, I think it matters. First, my focus is not original intent. Original intent is very interesting, but that's not the focus here. Instead, the goal is to look at what you might call the original danger that constitutional law sought to prevent. So rather than the original intent, you might think of this as a constitutional version of original sin. By knowing what constitutional law took aim at, we can actually understand constitutional law in a much deeper way that avoids all the vagaries of disputes about constitutional interpretation. Second, although the method is historical, the goal is conceptual and legal. The history reveals a powerful reconceptualization of administrative law and a lot of interesting legal consequences. So by looking at the past, my hope is we can better understand the present. To understand what is at stake here, I want to begin by explaining what I mean by administrative law. Uh, the, the term itself it may be something of a misnomer, one might prefer administrative power, but in law schools, we have classes that are called administrative law. So I'll, t I'll take that phrase, but define it in a way that I think is useful. There are many possible definitions of administrative law, but the one that matters here is historical. Put simply, administrative acts are binding or constraining edicts that come not through law, but along other pathways. For example, when an agency issues a rule constraining Americans, barring types of pollution or perhaps land use, this is an attempt to exercise binding legislative power not through an act of Congress, but through an administrative edict. And similarly, when an agency adjudicates an administrative violation, let's say imposing a fine or some other penalty, this is an attempt to exercise binding judicial power, not through a judicial act, but again through an administrative edict. Now leave aside for a moment whether these administrative edicts are unlawful. What makes them administrative is that they bind Americans not through law, 
nor through the decisions of courts of law, but through other mechanisms. So you can think of administrative power as, well, off-road driving, right? The Constitution generally authorizes two avenues of binding power, acts of Congress and acts of the courts. But the executive prefers to drive off-road, not through statutes and judicial acts, but along other administrative paths. And for those in the driver's seat, this off-road driving is exhilarating. For the rest of us, however, it's, it's a little unnerving. This understanding of administrative power in terms of binding edicts excludes, note, lots of executive action. So when I complain about administrative law, my complaint is not about government benefits or privileges. It's not about welfare or social security. And the complaint is not about orders to officers within their executive authority, for example, in distributing welfare. There could be problems there. This is not what this is about. Instead, the administrative law problem consists of attempts to bind or constrain Americans legislatively or judicially through acts other than those of Congress and the courts. On this understanding of administrative power, administrative law is a constitutional puzzle. Now, of course, our government is full of puzzles, and perhaps more so with every decade as we get more and more decisions from the courts, not to blame anyone in particular, but uh, our, you know, None of these puzzles are as serious as administrative power. The immediate puzzle is that administrative power does not match the powers authorized by the Constitution. The Constitution, of course, authorizes three types of power, legislative power in Congress, executive power in the president and its subordinates, and judicial power in the courts. What then is administrative power? Is it a fourth sort of power? It's often said so by some of my colleagues. But then how is it constitutional? My talk today will lay out two possible answers, both framed in terms of history. The first conventional and rather sunny view of the history uh, is that administrative law is a modern development. This conventional vision emphasizes the modernity of it all. There are many doctrinal justifications of administrative power, and we can talk about them later. My book goes into considerable detail about them. But the foundational justification is that administrative power is modern or novel, and so it's without much depth of history. From this perspective, administrative power begins around 1887, when Congress creates the Interstate Co Commerce Commission. Administrative power then repeatedly expands every several decades, in the early 1900s, 1930s, 1970s, and again now. A variant of this conventional sunny view comes from Jerry Mashaw at Yale, who suggests that administrative power began to develop a little earlier in the early practices of the federal government. But even this maintains the gist of the standard version, which is that at some point or another, after the founding of the Constitution, we get administrative power. Whether the conventional vision begins in the 1790s or the 1880s, the argument is that it developed since 1789 as a pragmatic response to the practical problems of American life. Sounds very reassuring, right? And although, so, although not mentioned in the Constitution, administrative law allegedly was, and these are quotations from Landis, an indigenous and empirical growth, which necessarily arose to deal with, again, our practical, pragmatic realities of American life. The conventional vision thus becomes an apology for administrative power. Sociologically, the message is one of modernity and necessity. Administrative law is a modern type of power necessary to handle the complexity of modern society, and so it's anti-modern and quixotic to resist it. 
I guess that makes me anti-modern quixotic, but I guess that's not news either, is it? Constitutionally, the message is that administrative law developed after the adoption of the Constitution. And so it could not have been anticipated by the Constitution. And therefore, even if it's not amongst the powers authorized by it, it's a necessary and modern addition. Again, a reassuring story, if you believe it. The justificatory implications are very powerful. In this conventional vision of the history, post-constitutional necessities just slice through the tripart division of powers in the Constitution. In the standard vision, pragmatic necessity for the executive to exercise all powers of government allows it to combine legislative, judicial, and executive power. Uh, in this pragmatic vision, moreover, well, you don't really need judges and juries, right? Just have the executive decide. Indeed, an agency can be a prosecutor, judge, and jury. And in the standard vision, pragmatic necessity avoids the need for all of the procedural rights guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. On the theory that it all can be reduced to administrative process, or as the line goes, you know, this is all the process that is due. You get out of court and suddenly you don't need due process, and so forth. But there are problems with this conventional vision, and the most basic question concerns its historical accuracy. Is it true that administrative law is modern, post-constitutional American development? Is it true that the Constitution could not have anticipated administrative law and therefore did not prohibit it? Ultimately, the conventional vision doesn't dig deep enough, I think. It is a cheerful, breezy vision of history in which the past is not examined very closely in all the sweetness and light. So let's turn to a second vision of history, which looks below the surface of the usual apologetics and points, I think, to a dark and very dangerous past. In fact, administrative power revives absolute power. Rather than a modern necessity, it is a version of a recurring threat, one inherent in human nature and the temptations of power. The constitutional history of the last thousand years records the repeated ebb and flow of absolutism on the one side and of law on the other. And there always have been pressures for the absolutism, and law only sometimes has been able to resist. So during the next 10 minutes, let's examine the history of absolute power. And as I recount it, please think about the modern parallels. I will maybe talking about medieval or 17th century English history and their kings, but you should be thinking about contemporary presidents. We need to begin with prerogative power. English kings were widely expected to rule through law. They had parliament for making law and courts of law for adjudicating cases. And kings were expected to govern through the acts of these bodies. Thus, to bind their subjects in general, they had to seek acts of parliament. And to bind their subjects in particular cases, they had to seek the acts of law courts. But kings, of course, were often discontent with governing through law. They wanted control, more control than they could get when relying on their legislature and judicial acts. And so they therefore often acted on their own, not through law, but through royal or prerogative power. The power ordinarily exercised through law thus was evaded when kings acted through prerogative power. Prerogative power thus was, you could say, the predecessor of administrative power. Prerogative power was the personal power of kings. Administrative power is the bureaucratized power of the state. But otherwise, they're very similar. Both have been evasions of law. Consider these prerogative evasions, and they should sound familiar if you know anything about administrative evasions. Ordinarily, Kings bound their subjects through statutes, but with their prerogative power, they bound them through proclamations or decrees, what we call rules and regulations. Ordinarily, kings repealed old statutes by obtaining new statutes, 
but through their prerogative power, they issued prerogative dispensations and suspensions, what we call waivers. Ordinarily, kings could enforce law only through the courts of law, but with prerogative power, they enforced their extra-legal commands in their own prerogative courts, King's Council, Star Chamber, High Commission. We have the equivalent of these. They're called our administrative agencies. Ordinarily, the kings had to work through courts of law with the due process of law. But in their prerogative courts, they could use civilian inquisitorial process, what we call administrative process. Ordinarily, kings resolved disputes about royal power. Sorry, ordinarily, the judges resolved disputes about royal power. But on account of the prerogative power, kings expected deference from the judges. They expected deference to prerogative regulations, to prerogative interpretations of statutes, and to prerogative fact-finding. And interestingly, though, unlike today, the judges then generally refused to defer. Last but not least, prerogative power evaded English divisions of power. Although the English did not yet have a full separation of powers, they had a basic division of powers. Parliament made law, the courts adjudicated it, the king exercised force. Nonetheless, when kings act through their prerogative power, they are the prerogative courts, exercise all government powers. For example, the Star Chamber made regulations, <clears throat> prosecuted infractions, and adjudicated them. It sounds just like a modern agency. Evidently, prerogative power was a means of evading government through law. It was a way of exercising it outside the law. And just as kings evaded law with prerogative power, the executive now evades it law with administrative power. The defenders, not the opponents, the defenders of prerogative or administrative power described it as absolute. They made no bones about this. Of course, the phrase absolute power can have many meanings. But it once was used in very concrete ways to describe prerogative or administrative power that evaded the law. Now, what made power absolute? Conceptually, there are three central elements. Absolute power was extra-legal, super-legal, and consolidated. And I think these conceptual points about absolute power which remain very illuminating about contemporary administrative power. So first, absolute power was extra-legal. It was extra-legal in the sense that it bound the public not through law but through other sorts of edicts. For example, when a king bound their su his subjects not through statutes but through prerogative decrees, he acts extra-legally. When he makes adjudications or his agencies make adjudications binding subjects not through law courts but through prerogative adjudications, again, it's extra-legal. Thus, the first way in which prerogative or today administrative power is absolute is that it is extra-legal power, that power exercised not through law but outside it. Second, absolute power was super-legal. And by the way, these terms I don't invent. These are terms they use since the Middle Ages. Prerogative power is defended in these terms. Absolute power was super-legal in the sense that kings expected judges to defer to it as a power above law. Judges have a duty to exercise their own independent judgment in accord with the law of the land. It's an ancient duty of the judges, and it's still with us. The kings, therefore, could not impose their extra-legal power unless they could evade review in the courts. Kings, therefore, insisted that much of their prerogative was above the law, that it was super-legal. From this perspective, judges had to defer to prerogative decrees, to the interpretations of statute, prerogative interpretations and adjudications. Deference to prerogative or administrative power thus depends on this power being super-legal and is the second way in which it's absolute. The third way in which absolute power is distinctive is that it's consolidated. 
It was consolidated in the sense that it unites all government powers in one body. The king and his prerogative courts, what we call administrative agencies, consolidate all power in these courts. And similarly, administrative bodies do this too. Prerogative or administrative power thus could be absolute in three basic ways, extra-legal, super-legal, or consolidated. Now, underlying these three elements was the usual conceptual justification for absolute power, necessity. There used to be an entire body of learning on the notion of necessity, and it survives in our Constitution only in the Necessary and Proper Clause, which, notice, reduces it to a matter of law. It's not a power above law. But traditionally, necessity was a claim above law. Necessity was said to have no law, thus stood apart from law and rose above it, and therefore was the repeated justification for the extra and superlegal and consolidated power. So whereas common lawyers rested on the law of the land, kings attempted to evade and defeat claims of law with claims of necessity. Let's look at some historical examples. I think much of the history of the common law can be understood as repeated responses to absolutism. But whereas most people think that history came to an end in the 17th century when everything was settled constitutional law, it may be this history has continued with us. King John calls Englishmen to account extra-legally in his council. He hauls them in as if his council were a court. So the barons demand in Magna Carta in 1215 that no freeman may be taken or imprisoned or deceased, nor will the king send for him except by the lawful judgment of his peers and by the law of the land. When 14th century English kings question Englishmen in the king's council again, parliament in 1354 and 1368 enact due process statutes. These are the first guarantees of due process in those terms, requiring the king to act with the due process of law, in the courts of law with all the process of the courts. When King James in the 17th century attempts to make law extra-legally through his proclamations, the judges respond in 1610 with an opinion that binding proclamations were unlawful and void. When James demands judicial deference to prerogative interpretations of statutes, the judges simply refused. Indeed, in 1641, Parliament abolishes the prerogative courts, the Star Chamber and the High Commission, which had engaged in extra-legal lawmaking and adjudication. They abolished their administrative power. Most profoundly, the English defeated prerogative or absolute power by developing ideas of constitutional law. The English Constitution, allegedly lost in the midst of time, was said to be the source of all government power. And it was said to place legislative power in the legislature and judicial power in the courts. The Constitution thereby made clear that there was no extra-legal, super-legal, or consolidated power. And the US Constitution echoes this response to absolutism. Early Americans were very familiar with absolute power. They studied it at length. You can still see their notes about it in manuscripts across this country. They feared this extra-legal, super-legal, and consolidated power because they knew from history it could evade all law and all legal rights. And therefore, it's no surprise that they framed the Constitution to bar this sort of power. To be precise, Americans established the Constitution as the source of all government power, and they used the Constitution to, play play, Constitution to place legislative power in the legislature and judicial power in the courts. Again, there could be, therefore, no extra-legal, super-legal, or consolidated power. Nevertheless, absolute power has come back to life in common law lands. After absolute power was killed off in England and America in the 17th and 18th centuries, it circled back. How? It circled back through Germany, especially Prussia. <clears throat> 
Although extra-legal power was defeated in England and America, it survived and flourished in civil law countries, most prominently France and Germany, a little bit in Russia too. There, there on the continent, what once was the personal prerogative of kings becomes the bureaucratic administrative power of states. And this happens most notably in Prussia in the 17th and 18th century. And as a result, in the 19th century, the Prussians are the primary theorists of, of administrative power. And they celebrate its absolutist anti-constitutional implications. They're scathing about constitutions, separation of powers. They see this as an affront to the administrative power of the state. And strangely, this becomes the source of American administrative law. Thousands upon thousands of Americans study administrative power in Germany in the 19th century. Now, this alone was not enough to revive absolutism. But at the same time, progressives were becoming discontent with elected legislatures and independent courts. And there's an interesting story about class in this you can read about in my book, but I'll leave the question of class aside for the moment. The progressives increasingly sought to evade rule through and under law, and they therefore embraced German ideas about absolute power. They adopt absolutist theories of extra-legal lawmaking and adjudication. They adopt absolutist theories of deference to superlegal power, including interpretation, and they adopt absolutist theories about consolidated state power. They even popularize the absolutist theory about how necessity justifies departures from constitutional law, including, of course, the pragmatic necessity of administrative law. The progressives, moreover, understood exactly what they were doing. Someone like Woodrow Wilson lectures on this subject, administrative law in the 1880s in Princeton, and 1890s, and uh, it's just warmed over German theory. The only way he departs from it is, in fact, that he misreads. German is imperfect. He teaches himself Germany. German. He doesn't go over there. And he doesn't quite understand the nuances of German administrative law. But otherwise, he follows it as closely as he can. John Dickinson writes in the 1920s, the question of whether or not the king can issue ordinances parallels our modern question as to whether or not an executive body officer can establish regulations. And the arguments used pro and con have followed much the same lines. They knew what they were doing. There thus is a direct intellectual connection between medieval absolute power and modern administrative power. What the English defeated in the 17th century and Americans rejected in the 18th, Europeans, especially the Prussians, preserved and developed. And from Germany, Americans reintroduced absolute power. So absolute power actually is not just a revival. Uh, it has been continuous. Although once defeated by constitutional law in Anglo-American nations, it has come back, circled back through Germany and especially Prussia, and triumphed. Over the past 120 years, Americans have reestablished thus the very sort of power that the US Constitution most centrally forbade. Administrative law, again, is extra-legal. It binds Americans not through law, but through other mechanisms, not through statutes, but through regulations, not through the decisions of courts, but through other adjudications. It is super-legal in that it requires judges to put aside their independent judgment and defer to administrative power, once again bowing to it as if it were above the law. And it is consolidated in that it combines the three powers of government and administrative agencies. Absolutism has returned. We just don't use that word anymore. This dark vision of the history has powerful constitutional implications because this isn't just a history book. I hope the history is very careful. I have a background in 17th century English history, and some of this is based even on manuscript sources. This is not just a secondary summary of 17th century history. 
But it is a law book, and the goal of studying this history is to understand what the Constitution actually does. In general, the history shows that the Constitution bars this extra legal, super legal, and consolidated power, regardless of whether you call it administra uh, administrative or prerogative, tomato, tomato, take your pick, the Constitution prohibits this sort of absolute power. But the history is also powerful when you get into specifics. And I therefore want to close this talk with some examples of how the history darkly illuminates some familiar constitutional problems. There are many possible examples, but it should suffice, I think, to talk about two of them, delegation and procedural rights. One standard defense of administrative law is delegation. For example, it is said Congress delegates its lawmaking power to administrative agencies. And they then use this power to promulgate regulations. From this perspective, it doesn't matter that regulations are extra legal because Congress has delegated its lawmaking power. This, however, is a very poor defense. Why? In the past, the delegation of lawmaking was actually a familiar feature of absolute power. And this suggests that it was anticipated by the Constitution. When kings exercise extra legal power, they usually have at least some delegated authority from parliament. For example, take the most notorious example, when Henry VIII issues binding proclamations as if he was writing statutes just personally, he acts under a statute, the Act of Proclamations. Yet even with express legislative delegation, his binding proclamations were understood to be exercises of absolute power. He acknowledged that, parliament acknowledged that, and critics acknowledged this. And centuries later, 18th century to be precise, the Act of Proclamations was condemned as unconstitutional. As put by David Hume, no Whig, when Parliament gave to the King's Proclamation the same force as a statute enacted by Parliament, it made by one act a total subversion of the English Constitution. The delegation of legislative power thus was an utterly familiar aspect of absolute power and did not deprive of, it of its extra legal absolute character. How does the US Constitution respond? It expressly bars the delegation of legislative power. Now, according to all scholars who have written on this, for example, Cass Sunstein, the Constitution does not expressly bar the delegation of legislative power. And therefore, we have to fight about some sort of non-delegation doctrine, which is merely a doctrine from the courts, not from the Constitution. And it you know, ebbs and flows. But on the whole, there's delegation, because the Constitution doesn't expressly bar it. Well, I suggest reading the very first words. In fact, the very first word of the Constitution after the preamble. What does it say? All. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in Congress. All of them. The very first word is there to preclude delegation of legislative power. If all legislative powers are in Congress, none of them can be elsewhere. Evidently, the delegation of legislative power was a familiar problem, and the Constitution responded by expressly barring it. A second constitutional problem illuminated by the dark history is the administrative denial of procedural rights. Administrative adjudication evades almost all of the Constitution's procedural rights. It offers some minimal protections, but even in cases that are criminal in nature, it subjects Americans to adjudication without real judges without juries, without grand juries, without full protection against self-incrimination, without other due process of law, and so forth. It even gets down to entirely skewed burdens of evidence. But I won't bore you with that. Indeed, like the old prerogative courts, administrative courts substitute inquisitorial process for the due process of law. 
And again, by the way, this is not an accident. It's not just a revival. Um, it was copied from some of the Germans. So administrative adjudication has now become an open avenue for government evasion of procedural rights. The government can choose how to go after you. It can go through the courts with all those messy procedures, or it can just do it on its own. Guess which they find preferable. The standard justification is that the Constitution's procedural rights, that's most of the Bill of Rights note, apply centrally to what the government does in courts. It's all about what happens in courts, you know. So it doesn't really apply to what happens in administrative proceedings. That's a different matter. That isn't really covered by the Bill of Rights. Hence the famous perversion of due process, that administrative agencies provide the process that is due, which turns out to be about this big. But the history shows that procedural rights developed not just incidentally, but primarily to bar prerogative or administrative proceedings, not merely to regulate what the court does in regular courts of law. The principle of due process, recall, developed already in 14th century statutes, which attempt to prevent the exercise of judicial power by the king's council, a prerogative or administrative agency, not a court of law. Englishmen developed due process into a constitutional principle in the 17th century in opposition to the prerogative or administrative courts. It therefore is clear that the due process of law centrally barred extra-legal adjudications, not really wayward adjudications in courts. Similarly, just to take another procedure, example of this procedure, the right to a jury developed primarily in opposition to prerogative or administrative proceedings, not merely as to court proceedings. One of the problems with prerogative adjudication in the 17th century is precisely that it denies defendants their right to a jury. Early Americans understood this danger of administrative proceedings. And in fact, some of the earliest constitutional cases in America, in New Jersey in 1780 or New Hampshire in 1785, held administrative proceedings unconstitutional precisely because they did not offer juries. By the way, they required juries in the first instance, not merely on appeal. You could not even in the first instance have a trial without a jury. So this dark history, I think, powerfully illuminates the constitutional problems. It shows that the Constitution barred the delegation of legislative power and that the Constitution guaranteed due process and jury rights most basically to bar administrative adjudication. Of course, there are many, many other examples, and you can read them in my book. But these few instances, I think, are enough to show the constitutional force of the analysis. In conclusion. The conventional or sunny vision of the history is utterly mistaken. It misses the entire pre-constitutional history. It misses the danger of extra-legal, super-legal, and consolidated power. It misses the recurring character of this absolute power. And it misses how constitutions, including the US Constitution, systematically barred absolute power. Whether prerogative or administrative, absolute power was forbidden. If we were to understand administrative power, we need an accurate history of it, we need an accurate conceptualization of it, an accurate vocabulary. The first step is historical. We need to recognize the place of administrative power in the long history of absolute power. And on this basis, we can begin to see the danger and begin, can begin to respond. Absolute power was the danger that led to the development of constitutional law. And we therefore can see how the Constitution barred this threat and how it is unconstitutional. The second step is conceptual. We need to recognize administrative power as extra-legal, super-legal, and consolidated. On this foundation, it becomes apparent that it is utterly in incompatible with constitutionalism and the ideal of rule through and under law. No, not merely the rule of law, but through and under law. And the third step is to change one's very vocabulary. 
Administrative power has thrived in America because its proponents use the vocabulary of law to legitimize an extra-legal enterprise. Therefore, to recognize the realities of administrative law, one needs to take back the language of law. One must reject the current legitimizing vocabulary and use more accurate words which recognize the grim realities. Administrative power seems lawful when one speaks, for example, of administrative law or when one speaks of administrative courts, or administrative law judges, or due process in administrative hearings. To be accurate, we must speak not about administrative law, but about administrative power, including extra-legal and super-legal power. Not about administrative courts and judges, but about executive officers going beyond their authority. And we cannot speak about the process that is due, but about administrative denials of due process. Only if we're honest in our very words can we begin to address the danger. At stake is nothing less than a thousand-year common law effort to establish governance through and under law. In a brief century, administrative power has revived absolutism. It has restored governance outside and above the law. This gets justified as a modern pragmatic response to modernity, but in fact, it is the recurring danger of absolutism, of extra-legal, super-legal, and consolidated power. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Hamburger, for that wonderfully complete discussion of the outline of your uh, book. We're now going to hear comments from uh, an old friend of the Cato Institute, uh, Judge Stephen Williams. Um, Judge Williams um, was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the D.C. Circuit in June of 1986 by President Ronald Reagan. He took senior status uh, in September of 2001. He's a graduate of Yale College and of the Harvard Law School. Uh, he, after graduating from law school, served for a few years in private practice, and then he became assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. From, um, in, uh, from 1969 until his appointment um, to the bench, uh, he taught at the University of Colorado School of Law, and during that time, he taught also as a visiting professor at UCLA, at the University of Chicago Law School, and at Southern Methodist University. And he was also a consultant to the Administrative Conference of the United States uh, Federal Trade Commission. Please welcome Judge Stephen Williams. Uh, first, I want to say that this is a very uh, rich book. It has a lot of uh, very intriguing uh, accounts of important history. For example, um, the, the history of the Chancery Court, particularly the way in which uh, there was evidently a strong uh, resistance to its uh, arrogance, I guess is the simplest way of putting it, uh, to the point where its existence was threatened. Uh, and it responded by pulling in its horns and uh, becoming more court-like. So that was a, a, good, a good story. Um, there's also the first explanation of Rechstadt, which I've ever even thought I understood. And uh, Professor Hamburger can correct me at lunch as to whether I really did understand it. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's a, very, a very rich book. Uh, I, what am I, I'm going to do now 
uh, is to, it, it would be dull if I simply agreed with Professor Hamburger, uh, I'm going to address uh, a couple of problems that I see in his analysis, and then I'm going to report to you on uh, what strikes me as good news, uh, that is to say, a certain amount of uh, resistance by US courts to at least what one might describe as the more extreme versions of the perils that he points to. Uh, first, a, a, I think it's fair to say that a, an important analytical move that Professor Hamburger makes is to draw a distinction between a simple flat-out regulation by an agency uh, and, an, and a regulation or rule that is attached as a condition to a government benefit. And he did in his talk here uh, allude specifically, for example, to welfare benefits. If I read him correctly, he, he also relies on this distinction when we talk about licensing. So that if he, he notes that a history of federal licensing subject to conditions to be created by the licensing agency goes back a long ways. And, and, I, and I'll take an episode from 1852, which is the uh, extension of uh, such a licensing scheme to uh, essentially waterborne steamer traffic. And if I'm understanding him correctly, he acknowledges, and this is whatever it is, 35 years before the Interstate Commerce Act, uh, Professor Hamburger more or less countenances that, or at least uh, regards it as, uh, as a marginal uh, invasion of prior understandings, because it is simply, well, I'm, I, I won't try to, to state it. it. It's different from simply the, the flat out uh, prohibition, and, and he uses the term binding uh, very, very carefully to apply to the simple rule that covers anyone who steps into its path, as opposed to the problem of licensees. Uh, I, it seems to me that analytically, this doesn't work. Uh, if it is the case, that the government can require a license in a good law, a law uh, adopted by Congress and perfectly clear in, in, in its first step, you can't do X without a license. Uh, and then the conditions can be attached to that by a regulatory agency. It seems to me you're very close to uh, exactly the sort of administrative action that he deplores. Um, I mean, at least one of the instances of this is environmental regulation, where Congress requires permits for a lot of activities. The permits are to be granted under regulations adopted by the EPA. The EPA adopts them, and those for anyone seeking to enter this industry are the law. So I, um, <clears throat> incidentally, I should say Professor Hamburger tries to soften this, I, th I think, by arguing that they, there's a type of license which is uh, confined in an important way. For example, when he talks of that uh, steamboat river traffic, 
He says that the, the vessels covered were ones of a sort that increasingly were traveling on the high seas and even to foreign countries. And he makes it sound like this is, this is something that's sort of beyond ordinary domestic regulation. But the fact that the vessels are the same as vessels going overseas doesn't seem to me to quite, quite do the trick. So uh, to the extent that the uh, indictment of the current situation turns on that distinction, uh, I think it's vulnerable. Now, a second uh, vulnerability is the very strong uh, concept of non-delegation that Professor Hamburger uh, invokes, to where he reads the vesting of legislative power in Congress uh, as an absolute bar on the exercise of rulemaking power, shall we call it, uh, under such a, un, under a statute adopted by Congress. First, I, I, sh I should say that um, uh, I would welcome the idea of a reinvigoration of the non-delegation rule. Uh, I'm probably the last judge ever to write an opinion uh, invalidating statute on the basis of the non-delegation rule, uh, but I'm reasonably confident uh, that no one will be fool enough to follow me uh, in the next, uh, in the foreseeable future, uh, because I was slapped down unceremoniously and unanimously by the Supreme Court uh, on appeal. So uh, that, that appears to be a, a view that is foreclosed. Um, the, the, a, a reinvigorated non-delegation rule has friends. None of them is on the US Supreme Court. Mm. The, but, but still, the, um, this qualified, this essentially a rule against undue delegation, wouldn't do anything like the work that Professor Hamburger would like to have done. I, I, uh, the, the historical arguments are, are numerous and, and interesting and strong. Uh, but I, let, me, let me take an example, which I think clearly doesn't get all the way. Uh, he talks of a provision by Queen Elizabeth, which essentially outsourced complete enforcement of a criminal statute to a private party, including the power to cancel the statute altogether. And this came before a court, uh, which found that that was an excess of her powers. I should add, because it does add uh, richness to the story, uh, that the court reached this decision after Queen Elizabeth was safely dead. Uh, but in a, but I, I think that is, that is different from the sort of uh, delegations that we see in what I regret to say is our, our everyday work. Now let me turn to delegation of uh, adjudicative power. And Professor Hamburger is certainly right that since the 1932 case of Kroll versus Benson, uh, it would be unfair to say that all the limits are off, but the uh, amount of vesting of adjudicative power in entities that are not Article III courts is, is clearly massive. One of the things that fascinates me about the doctrine is that uh, to the extent that a requirement that adjudication be done by Article III courts is enforced at all, there's an explicit recognized exception for so-called public rights, which turns out to mean conflicts between the citizen and the government. So 
just at the point where you would think that uh, having a truly neutral party uh, protected by life tenure uh, to, to make the decisions, the Supreme Court says, no, no, that's no problem. That said, uh, I, I, uh, it was, it was eye-opening for me to face uh, the uh, depiction that Professor Hamburger draws of the way in which particularly criminal law can get outsourced to non actually both stages. The, the norms being enforced are not norms adopted by Congress, and the enforcing entities are not courts, and, and yet someone can be taken off to jail or have a fine imposed on him. Um, I did, this is uh, an aspect of the administrative rule, administrative law that uh, I see rarely, if at all. I can't honestly recall seeing uh, that kind of case in 28 years, which d doesn't mean they don't happen. Uh, but, I, but I'm happy to be able to report that there is some pushback in the courts on that subject. And I want to take up just two cases. One is a decision uh, by the Sixth Circuit, written by Judge Sutton, which deals with the question of deference to agencies in their interpretation of a statute, where the statute, where violation of the statute carries criminal penalties. And uh, Judge Sutton, in this case, says you, you have, on the one hand, Chevron deference for the interest of law and lawyers. That's a very uh, broad form of deference uh, in which the agency view prevails so long as, as it is, quote, reasonable, unquote. Uh, there's the Chevron doctrine on the one hand and the rule of lenity on the other. And Judge Sutton clearly comes down unequivocally uh, in favor of the rule of lenity. So he. Uh, effectively neutralizes the Chevron, Chevron doctrine in that context. Second, uh, there's a case involving something I had not heard of, or at least I've heard of, I'd forgotten it, and that is administrative compliance orders, uh, which the EPA has authority from Congress to issue. In providing the EPA this power, Congress provided no procedures by which the EPA was to arrive at the order. In fact, rather, uh, it sort of it, it opened the door in a remarkably affirmative way, saying, on the basis of any information, any information, the EPA can issue such an order. And the court, this is the 11th Circuit, rightly, uh, I think, understood this to be the equivalent of an injunction. If you if you violate it, as is true of an injunction, which emerges only after judicial proceeding, if you violate this, uh, no questions asked, you're uh, a criminal. Um, and the, I'm, I'm uh, proud on behalf of the US courts to report that the 11th Circuit uh, found that, uh, found that essentially the delegation, the purported delegation of that power uh, unlawful. So there is, uh, there is some pushback. You may say, you may rightly say, that these represent extreme cases, uh, but certainly in the domain of criminal law, it seems to me probable uh, that there will be similar pushback by the courts. Now, I want to close on the, the question of whether there can be any reform. 
And um, I'm a little concerned about Professor Hamburger's book in the sense that it paints such a dire picture and by implication calls for such drastic remedies that I think a lot of uh, people would be likely to react saying, oh, case is hopeless. There's nothing we can do. We've got to live with it. Uh, and that, in a sense, as my report on the cases pushing back, uh, would be unfortunate. Um, so I, 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 two, two remaining things. One is even a revived non so-called non-delegation doctrine, which is really a rule against undue delegation, would do comparatively little to trim the existing administrative state. So, so he is right in saying that that's uh, not a complete remedy uh, by a long shot. More broadly, I think it's fair to say that a, a full solution of the problem that he has put, at least along to, to uh, protect the ideals and goals which he voices, <clears throat> Uh, requires a complete change in the attitude of the American citizenry towards government regulation as a whole. And happily, the scholars at Cato are working night and day to develop policy papers explaining to the American public uh, why uh, that change is in order. Uh, but I think until Cato, Cato and, and uh, others prevail on that viewpoint, uh, we are probably stuck with a large part of what he impugns. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's a great honor to have Judge Williams here commenting on this. I'm very grateful to him. No one, I think, on the bench has done as much to alert people to the nature of administrative law and to deal with it in a dispassionate and serious way. Unfortunately, though, I, I think conceptually the nature of administrative law has been forgotten, and uh, the courts have really learned to defer in a way even 17th century judges have not. And as a result, I, I, I think there will be no, I agree with you, there will be no salvation from the courts. Uh, no, probably there's no salvation anywhere, but that's another story. Uh, I, I, at first, I'd just simply just like to agree with Judge Williams on the spending issue. Uh, this book doesn't really deal with conditions on spending, but conditions on spending actually are as bad as a lot of administrative law. It's actually the most common means of imposing censorship in this country, which, by the way, is, is coming back in ways most people don't even realize. And so it's very, very dangerous. Uh, in dealing with the licensing of steamboats in the 1850s, I was just trying to be as accurate as possible about how they sorted it out. Uh, it is complicated, uh, but they confined licensing to cross-border matters. It's really rather interesting. And steamboats went up to Canada, you see. Um, and a few years earlier, it had been defined in terms of admiralty as being offshore. It's, what's interesting is if you look through federal statutes for licensing, particularly licensing regulations, it's hard to find any that didn't deal with purely domestic matters until 1902, which is actually quite astonishing. I found that quite remarkable. It suggests just how dramatically we've changed the nature of our government. Um, as to the long-term solution, uh, it, am I recommending too much? Am I expecting too much from the courts? 
Maybe, uh, but it's a slow process. Uh, uh, strong ideas do not require strong action, actually. Uh, and it seems to me, precisely because we can expect nothing much from the courts, the solution does have to come from all of us. And the first step, and all my book really calls for, is simply that we think clearly on the subject. Um, to be accurate, I think, is, to, is, is enough. And beyond that, we'll see what happens. Thank you. All right. Um, let me open the uh, question period uh, by asking uh, <clears throat> Professor Hamburger if indeed there is any uh, solution to this problem of uh, the uh, growth topsy-turvy of the modern executive administrative state until we come to grips with the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers. In other words, if Congress is going to continually pass such statutes as the Affordable Care Act, the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley uh, Sarbanes Act, and their ilk, uh, is administrative law anything but inescapable? Interesting question. I, I, I confess I'm more optimistic than, than that, uh, in the sense that uh, we don't just have one problem. I think the traditional approach to government is to see it as danger of big government, whereas in fact I think we, we should simply say that we have a specialized government and in, in some should be strong in some areas and less strong in others. In fact, shouldn't have power in some areas. But the problem has been seen in terms of enumerated powers, which we now have a government of general powers, so perhaps that's the source of all these difficulties. It strikes me that the administrative power problem, the extra legal uh, power problem, is actually an additional problem, difficulty. Yeah. And it actually leaves one then with multiple modes of response. One could respond to some of these statutes by saying Congress has overstepped its bounds. This is simply a problem of defining congressional powers. But I think we can also respond by saying, OK, suppose you win on those issues. Congress, you take all that general power as if you're just a state. Nonetheless, uh, you shouldn't be using administrative power. That's an extra legal mode of governance. So I think it actually opens up multiple fronts. Um, and I think we, in fact, have multiple problems. So I, I, I guess I view this more optimistically, oddly enough. Hmm. <laughs> to think about that. All right, we're going to turn to questions from you. Uh, let me ask, first of all, uh, that you uh, wait for the microphone to come to you. Uh, give us your name and any affiliation you may have and to whom your question is directed. And we have two. Where are our microphone folks uh, here? Okay. Um, while one person is asking a question, I am going to direct the other microphone uh, person to the next question, so let me know your hands while the question is being asked or answered so I can, we can get more questions in during this period of time. So who has the first question here? Uh, this woman right here, yes. <clears throat> Helen Anderson. Uh, there is no due process of law in satellite surveillance cases. Uh, is there an administrative law that addresses this? Or is it just something that is done? I have no idea. Uh, yeah, OK. <laughs> There's the short answer. <laughs> no idea. Uh, this gentleman right here. Yes, I'd like to thank uh, both uh, Mr. Hamburger and Judge Williams. I thought it was really a good uh, discussion. I missed uh, the moderator's comments, if any. 
That was the best part. No, <laughs> I, I suspected that because they were handing it out in front. But I wanted to make a point. It appeared to me, based on my pocket constitution here, that there uh, is no constitutional defense to administrative law being a progressive disease to destroy our rights. And the reason I say that is under Article 3, Section 2, I think Paragraph 2, the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is very simple and doesn't apply to anybody but the states and ambassadors. And then if you look at it further, it says what the judge had talked about, appellate jurisdiction, but appellate jurisdiction, as I recall, is determined by Congress. And the problem with that appears to me under this is that they're the only ones that can de define that. And I believe, and I could be wrong, that there is no right to appeal anything to the United States Supreme Court unless it's granted by Congress. So that means that the Congress can totally destroy any right we have, but the thing that further I'd point out is under Seventh Amendment, it was only then that they even applied the Constitution to civil matters, and then it was only the Fourteenth Amendment that applied these matters to states. So it appears to me we are totally defenseless under Article Three, Section Two, to any encroachment by the federal government and the. Uh, uh, issue we're here, administrative law, and they were all, because I've always felt the jury trial was a defense, but it doesn't appear to me to be a defense at all. Okay, thank you. Uh, so those are very interesting issues. Uh, the tr you know, traditionally when people worry about civil rights, they've looked at exactly this problem. Can Congress cut off jurisdiction from the courts, and what will the consequences be? Oddly enough, administrative power is not a product of anyone cutting off access to the courts. Uh, the, AP, the Administrative Procedure Act allows various ways of getting to the courts. And the real danger is actually when administrative power gets to the courts, the judges simply give way. They concede. Uh, the history of this is very disturbing. Uh, the judges initially did not allow administrative power, but they got beaten up. There were concerted attacks on the judges, threats to their jurisdiction, and threats to, uh, even to their length of time on the bench. And after around 1916 or so, they give way. And they, they, they start deferring, and partly because of deliberate attempts to threaten them. Um, now, the traditional solution, fortunately, did not involve federal courts. Uh, rather, it was officer liability for damages uh, for any attempt to engage in unlawful administrative power in state courts. And one of the really sad stories about all of this is how officers, members of any government, state or federal, used to be the same as the rest of us. For our unlawful injuries, our unauthorized injuries, we would be held accountable and paid damages, just as each of us would be held accountable if I injured you accidentally or purposefully on the street. So too for an officer. But the Prussian and generally civilian law model was that officers are a privileged class. They are the state. They carry its sovereignty, and they do not pay damages. They're not even accountable in the courts. And this came to be adopted in the United States. There's a very interesting question as to the constitutionality of this, but that's going to be a longer battle. And again, it won't be one in the courts. Uh, as Jefferson said, we need a revolution in the mind. In this case, not a very revolutionary revolution, but just to recognize the rights we had. Ed Whalen? I just want to add. Oh, well, go oh yes, go ahead. Well, uh, Professor Hamburg is completely right about the uh, history of administrative law. Uh, essentially, 
the officer was out there uh, naked except for the statute under which he purported to act, and unless he was right in the view of the court uh, in, in what he did, destroying somebody's property or something like that, uh, he was liable. I, I, I think that's not a, uh, in, in a way, that's a good model. It's, it's a completely no deference model. Uh, and, and is appetizing in some ways. I think it's, in the long run, not a solution because it, uh, in many cases, will give the victim of a lawless act uh, a useless remedy, that is to say, a uh, damage judgment uh, against someone who is judgment-proof or at least not able at all to uh, provide compensation. If you turn to claims against the state, then you encounter the rather curious doctrine of sovereign immunity, why, exactly why that has any role in a society without a king, I'm not sure, but in any event, uh, it does. And the waivers of sovereign immunity uh, have been surprisingly limited, although uh, substantial, but limited. Um, so I think that uh, the, a, a remedy that would bring things back to the era when officers were actually liable for things they did wrong as evaluated by judges reading the statute, uh, the, the better hope for getting back to that is through uh, a provision relating to uh, sovereign immunity uh, and the standard of review to be applied there. If I may, I, 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 I gently disagree for the reason that I think courts always will defer to government and will be reluctant to hold the government responsible. Whereas if it's a wayward individual from time immemorial, they have been more willing to actually hold someone accountable. And the goal, of course, is not to actually give damages to the individual. That's actually secondary. The goal is actually to police government power. So I don't, I'm not really terribly worried that most individuals would not get a remedy a few would, and that would be enough to scare the living daylights out of officers. The traditional presumption amongst all officers, you know, like an 18th century constable or a 19th century federal officer, was this, that you look for clear authority in the law or you don't act. Um, and this meant Congress often had to give very broad and clear authority. But that's okay, then they had it. Uh, in contrast, now, all you really need is to have some plausible account of authority with a little dexterity from a lawyer, and you're free to go. And this is just a bizarre way of running a government. Well, there was a time when tarring and feathering worked. Uh, <laughs> Even I don't go yeah. that far. Ed, uh, Ed Whalen, Ethics and Public Policy Center. First, congratulations to Professor Hamburger on his impressive book. I'm in the final chapters of it and very much enjoying it. Here's my question. I'm really interested in uh, any insights you might have on the role of law schools in educating or rather miseducating generations of law students um, about uh, administrative law. Uh, recalling my own days, I don't think these grand questions of how is this even legitimate were ever raised in an administrative law course or constitutional law course. Um, is it your sense that these uh, issues continue to be glossed over with law students just thrown into the, uh, the, um, the mire of standards of review or um, are law schools increasingly addressing um, these foundational questions. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right to be worried about this. Thank you. Uh, there are some fields, uh, international law is one, administrative law is another, in which the critical attitudes or questions 
actually are not tolerated very well, and this is notorious within the profession. Administrative law may be even worse than international law in this respect, which is astonishing, because you wouldn't know, is it possible? Uh, and I don't think this is coincidence. These are areas of law that derive from the, civili the civilian model, populated by people educated in, in civilian ideas. And there's very little patience for al alternative points of view. Perhaps it's because of the moral grandeur of the enterprise that you can't tolerate dissent. But this is actually a problem I encountered uh, in finding readers for the book within academia. Some of my co distinguished colleagues with whom I'm friends um, found it painful to read. One actually wrote me an email. So I have actually had this in an email in which he says, you know, thanks for sending the manuscript. I'd like to read it, but I find it just too painful. <laughs> <laughs> I felt good about that, oddly enough. So I, I actually wanted his comments. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Law schools, as on so many topics, are, are actually part of the problem. Yeah. Right here. Benjamin Vetter, I'm affiliated with one of those administrative federal bureaucracies that you've been talking about all day. I'm, I'm curious as to how much your analysis is intertwined with the question of federalism as to whether your analysis would also reach down to state level administrative agencies and bureaucracies, which are rather robust in some states and less in others. It's uh, yeah, an excellent question. Uh, it's complicated. Uh, in general, the analysis applies to states. However, uh, some states have constitutions that drift a little away, a bit away from this sort of classical model. What's more, localities have often exercised a sort of administrative power. Uh, in other words, even in the 18th century, uh, when some of the founding fathers are sitting on county courts, for example, across the river in Virginia, they're doing things at a local level they would never have tolerated at a state level. So I think at the local level, there is actually room for a little bit of administrative law, depending on local constitutions and, and local frameworks. What I find actually most interesting about this localism question, the state question, is the degree to which uh, federalism is undermined through administrative law and through conditions on spending. The reality is that states and private institutions have been turned into federal agents for enforcing federal programs. And this leads to a host of very interesting litigation questions. At what point are they no longer private or states? What point are they actually federal agents? Cooperative federalism. Yeah. Wally? Uh, Walter Olson from the Cato Institute. Uh, Professor Hamburger, you let slip one remark toward the end about how censorship is coming back, and it's coming back through funding strings. And I wanted to pursue that. I'm going to guess that you meant uh, university uh, uh, speech codes uh, coming back through funding strings. Uh, in the Obamacare decision, there was kind of a sleeper section in which the Supreme Court recognized uh, overly coercive funding conditions. Uh, is this possibly the germ from which uh, one can push back against some of these trends, or are there other ways of pushing back? Well, I, I, would, I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you about ways of pushing back, uh, because uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, actually, what I had in mind was something much worse than political correctness and speech codes. These come to the, you know, to the froth, the surface of our culture, and we read about it in the newspapers. But I think actually that is not nearly as serious as actually systematic censorship. Let me give you an example of what I mean by censorship. I'm not talking about modern discomfort of speech codes or being kicked out of college. I'm talking about actual state-organized censorship. HHS treats speech as a health threat. 
And so they have established on every campus in this country things known as institutional review boards. If you've tried doing empirical research, you'll know what I'm talking about. You cannot do medical research without getting prior permission for the inquiry, even if it's merely talking to people. And you cannot publish without the permission. Even if you completed your work, you need permission to publish. If you don't get it, you have to withdraw your publication. Uh, you have to have an imprimatur on your publication saying it has a permission before you can publish it most journals. Even if you're doing purely political inquiry, for example, I want to do research on, um, on HIPAA, right, on, on HIPAA forms, I couldn't do it, right? With my, I was willing to violate the law and risk getting fired, but I wasn't going to do that to my students in a class. Um, I cannot ask a question of an, any HHS official without getting prior permission from a censorship board, an institutional review board. And they can stop me from asking questions that are insensitive, embarrassing, that would cause moral, uh, physical, emotional harm. You, you see where this goes. Of course, I have interviewed large numbers of HHS officials on these questions. Um, but the only reason is because the IRB at my school doesn't want that fight. Um, if you're not a law professor with a big mouth, uh, you, will, you will get fired. And I get calls regularly, actually, from doctors and scientists in particular who have life-saving work and they can't publish it. Probably at least tens of thousands, maybe much more than that, are, die every year because of unpublished research. The research they need to live is, cannot be published. So we talk about the 17th century and the Star Chamber, and it's all a matter of the past. We think tyranny is something intended and vicious. No, it's actually all done for our good. Yes. IHHS. <laughs> Paul. Uh, Paul Larkin, the Heritage Foundation. Professor, I have a, a question about the consequences of your view dealing with the ability agencies have to issue regulations and the like. Is it a consequence of your view that a court always must take a de novo look at whatever an executive branch agency has done? Or could a court adopt a rule that it will interpret the law in order to help make the law usable by the agency, to give deference to however they think they need to apply to law to deal with a problem. And if a court could adopt that rule, could Congress do the same thing? Could Congress just adopt as a rule of law that its programs have to be interpreted in a manner that allows them to be in interpreted well? Uh, okay, this gets into very complicated territory. Uh, he was in the Solicitor General's office. Yeah, so. <laughs> see, he's leading, me, he's leading me into danger here. Uh, so just in general, and then some specifics, in general, I think we, need, we have to be very worried that judges have come to see themselves as handmaidens of the administrative state. It's their goal to develop rules that work well for administrators. They want to create a working administrative state. Um, and perhaps the worst part of this, is, and they often say this in their cases in the Supreme Court, and the worst part, of course, are, is the, um, is the uh, what is it, the Administrative Law Council, uh, what's it called? Um, it slips me, conference, the Administrative Law Conference. Oh, really? Right, <laughs> what is, what, these are headed by judges, right? Very distinguished judges Not really. are associated no, no. with this. They're associated with it. Yeah, and they give admit, and they and they and they propose to Congress what they should do. Uh, it ends up drawing judges into the administrative process, if not to give advisory opinions, at least to be very comfortable with overseeing it. Now, as to specifics, uh, it's complicated because there are instances where determinations are lawfully made by the executive or even by others, 
which should be respected by the courts for some purposes. So for example, acts of state determined by the, by the president usually should be respected by the courts if the, court, if the president makes a determination the state of war. So there are areas in which determinations that you could call administrative should be respected. Mostly, almost entirely, I think these do not involve binding edicts, and so they are not what I would call administrative power. But there are some things that people would call administrative which do deserve deference, but they usually do not involve binding rules or binding adjudications. But one gets into some very narrow line drawing there. Sure. Uh, Ian Murray with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, as an aside, I will note that when I served in Her Majesty's government, we referred to delegation powers as Henry VIII powers. So there is some memory of absolute power <laughs> there in English law. But, uh, my question relates to the role of Congress in solving this mess. Uh, if you look back at the history of the popular assemblies of England, um, that the parliaments did not really view their first role as that of being a legislature. In fact, the word didn't exist in English in, the, in its current meaning until sometime in the 18th century. They viewed their powers being more as um, a break on the executive, uh, let's, uh, especially through the power of the purse. Indeed, the, uh, the protector of parliament of 1653 was called, the, the title of that parliament was the Keepers of Liberty. Should we therefore not look to Congress to think of themselves not so much first as a legislature whose view is, whose job is to pass laws, and because so much law has to be passed, it has to be delegated to the executive, but rather to being a break on the executive and stopping what the executive is doing? Could that be a way out? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> it was suggested by Roger, this is what courts are for, and I was going to say Congress is not better than the courts. I'd say Congress is worse than the courts. So I hope this is not true. Uh, as a matter of, matter of history, actually, I, I, I would disagree. Uh, there are all sorts of treatises and, co and, and, co and commentary from relatively early in which parliamentary power is identified as the lawmaking power. Um, this is repeated in treatises, manuscript and printed in, in the 16th century. And there's also, there, there, if actually, there's a me medieval treatise from the early 14th century which is explicit about this. So I. I, I would differ about that. But I do agree with you that Parliament then uh, served not only legislative power, but also saw itself as a protector of liberty. And that our Congress does not do. Uh, if you can rouse them to this, I would applaud. <laughs> Ilya. Sure. Ilya Selman, George Mason University. Uh, so I think you do an excellent job of pointing out the flaws in the historical theory which says that this emerged only in response to modern conditions. But I wonder how you would answer the accompanying normative argument, which is that uh, regardless of how it emerged in under modern conditions, we have sort of a large, complicated government that addresses many complex questions. And there's simply no way that uh, the 535 members of Congress can make all of the necessary rules or any way that the members of the federal judiciary with due respect to Judge Williams can uh, adjudicate ever, all the disputes. And so therefore, uh, under modern conditions, the argument goes, we have to have this administrative law, even if it isn't really lawful, even if it doesn't accord with the original meaning or the original intent of the Constitution and so forth. I don't myself necessarily agree with this argument. In fact, you can probably guess that I don't, but I wonder what your take on it would be. Uh, thank you. 
Thank you um, for coming for the invitation to address this. Actually, the, the book, although the book begins in a very historical way, uh, it turns into very much a legal argument, not just an historical argument. And one of my final chapters is indeed on the question of necessity. Is this necessary? It's a very important question. Uh, it seems to me, though, one cannot simply have an ac you know, ac pro-administrative uh, pro academics or a president simply declare it's necessary necessary as if they're King Charles saying, I have to break the law, it's necessary. And that's the end of the matter. Uh, this is an open question, academic question, indeed an empirical question. And so what's interesting is, has there been any evidence that any of this is necessary? We've had administrative power in America now for 120 years. How much empirical evidence is there that we actually need it? I haven't found anything that's scientifically serious, none whatsoever, at which point, one has to wonder, there may be something out there, but it's hard to find. So it seems to me the real question is, if you want to justify administrative power, show that it's necessary. Offer some empirical evidence of a sort that would be taken serious by people who are scientifically minded. What's more, don't assume that proof that you need administrative power in one little area means that you need it in another. So for example, the FDA may say it needs its administrative power, its licensing power, as to one set of drugs, that doesn't mean it needs it as to others. This has to be detailed empirical evidence. And thus far, none is forthcoming. Uh, and let me give you an example of just how practical this can be. The FDA, on average, in the past decade, has authorized, I think it's 23 drugs per year. It's, this is not an overwhelming number. Imagine that the FDA did all its studies, collected its information, and then once a year presented to Congress 23 drugs, or whatever the number is, to Congress to be approved or not approved, so that Congress rather than the FDA is doing the lawmaking. Now, perhaps this is more than Congress can handle, but it's not actually an overwhelming task. And we cannot believe that Congress is going to be more political than the FDA. The real problem with the FDA, of course, is that it's probably going to kill us all. I kid you not. You know, if you do law and medicine, you get very worried. Why? Because FDA is deeply afraid of making the wrong decision of one sort and not another. They're deeply afraid of authorizing a drug that gets one or two people killed. They're not terribly worried about forbidding drugs that may be necessary to save millions of us, because you know that will never be blamed. They'll never be blamed for that. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, just think about antibiotics. There are now only four major drug companies working on antibiotics. So I'm not kidding when I say this may eventually kill us. Uh, yes, um, I just want to add something. And Professor Hamburger's answer, particularly in connection with the FDA, uh, raised it. And that is that necessity can have two elements. One is, do we need a, uh, a legal program at all? And second, uh, assuming the answer to that is affirmative, uh, do we need it to be done by means of delegation to an agency? And presumably, uh, if, you're, if you're really talking about uh, a scientific uh, evaluation, it must uh, come up with a positive answer on both those propositions. One last quick question and quick answer. Oh, it was. OK, well, then we, this gentleman here had his hand up. And if you can, this the quick question and quick answer, and we'll uh, then break. I'll, I'll try to compress this. Uh, I'm, my name is Tad Lipsky. I'm from Latham and Watkins. I'm an antitrust lawyer, uh, and I, you know, antitrust is a field in which there's a kind of a a, a renaissance of questions of due process, uh, and and the renaissance is having a little trouble getting off the ground, frankly. But uh, 
in looking back at uh, uh, things that are thought to guarantee uh, good results and the protection of uh, fairness and due process and reach objective decision making, uh, I've been led to look at you know some of the basic procedural protections. You look at the very concept of separation of powers, concept of jury trial, and uh, you know it's really quite surprising. There are a lot of Western European nations that have eliminated jury trials because not because uh, they want to uh, uh, you know, certify the autocracy of the executive, but because they think juries are subject to prejudice and actually make worse decisions than uh, than judges. And uh, in, in the field of antitrust, you know. One of the things that really surprised me in looking back at this, uh, you mentioned, you know, why don't we have a demonstration, some kind of empirical evidence that these kinds of administrative procedures are, uh, are, are, are helpful or necessary uh, before we endorse them throughout the government. Uh, let me turn that around. You know, where, where is the evidence that, that, that separation of powers and jury trials and all the other things that were embodied in the Constitution are good things? And I, I don't doubt that they are in the slightest, but. I think it's interesting to look back and say, what persuaded the, the founders, the authors of the Constitution that, that these were good things? I would love to have access to that learning uh, to use in the current debate about, about procedures in, in my own field. I believe some of it's in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw out just a very quick answer. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, so two suggestions on this. Um, one. Uh, if one looks at England, where juries have been largely abandoned, one sees changes not only in how cases are decided, but in the very character of law. Law becomes infinitely more complicated because ju judges do not have to summarize the law for a jury. And that turns out to be actually essential for making the law compact and clear enough for the public even to understand, let alone other judges to understand. And J.H. Baker has written on this uh, actually for some decades. Uh, and then where does this matter? One of the ways in which 18th century folks thought it mattered was perhaps above all in cases of oppression, particularly free speech cases. And getting back to the IRBs, uh, I would love to be able to go before a jury to protect my freedom of speech in academia or to publish an article on any subject where I've actually talked to someone beforehand. And that's exactly what they don't want you to have. So it seems to me these things still matter profoundly, both for the nature of law and for political protection. Good luck with your work. The uh, book is available outside at a discount, I believe, and uh, Professor Hamburger would be glad to sign it for you. We're going to go now upstairs to the Georgia M. Yeager Conference Center for lunch. But before we do, uh, please give a warm round of applause for Professor Hamburger and Judge Williams. Thank you very much. Oh, really much That was very interesting.